Hey, good morning, y'all. Hey, my name is Ed Griffin Hagen. I'm one of the pastors on our staff, Church on the Trail. It's funny, and the Richard does not introduce himself. He loathes, I guess, introduce himself. The first service he didn't, and I said, I want to posthumously introduce Richard. Posthumously was a poor choice of words, but Richard is one of the uh, pastors also on our staff. But we're thankful that y'all are here this morning. Um, I know that God is moving and he's got something for us to talk through and to hear uh, this morning. If you're watching online, if you're on Facebook or on YouTube, for sure, uh, I think he's going to speak this morning. You know, last week we were, uh, we began, well, you know, for the several months we've been in the book of Romans and we're walking through different kind of little series within Romans and we've been in one for several weeks called Blueprints, Romans 9, 10, and 11. Last week, we were at the beginning of chapter 11, and we had two takeaways, or we left, I think, with two takeaways last week. One of them, the main one, is that you can trust God. He's trustworthy, and you can trust him. He's worthy of that trust. And number two, takeaway is that he's not done yet. In context, in Romans 11, he's talking about Israel, and he's telling us, uh, Paul is writing that, that the Lord is not done with Israel yet. Now, for me and you today, if there's breath in our lungs... He's not done with us either. You know, these first 10 verses are in Romans 11 are all about Israel and very much the fact that, uh, that he has not uh, permanently kicked them out. He's not permanently put them to the curb. The word in, uh, in that passage last week was rejected. He has not rejected them. We're going to talk through that a little bit more today. Verse 11 and following uh, Paul kind of turns his attention to the Gentiles. Now, I would imagine that most of uh, y'all here, probably everybody here, is a Gentile, of Gentile background, which just means you're not of Jewish background. And so Paul here, uh, at around verse 11, he turns his attention kind of away from the Jews and kind of on to the Gentiles. So Paul asks, again, he says, did the Jews stumble? Did they stumble? Um, did they stumble so that, or did, was there this temporary dullness in their mind or in their heart? Did they stumble so that, uh, so they could ultimately be down and out for the count? And Paul says again, no, absolutely clear cut, no, that's not what's going on. But when they walked out, the Jews, when they, te albeit temporarily, when they walked out, they left the door open for, I'm going to use the word outsider, because in context, that's right, uh, when they left the door open, they left the door open so that the Gentiles could kind of walk in. And if, if their leaving triggers this worldwide kind of oncoming of Gentiles being grafted, is a word that's used in Scripture, kind of grafted into the tree, kind of grafted into the kingdom, just imagine, Paul says, what is it going to be like, what is it going to look like when the Jews come back? Because, look, man, it's all, it's all part of God's plan. God didn't, it didn't again, I, I say it all the time, it didn't sneak up on him. This, his plan is unfolding. Well, his plan began at the foundation of, really before the foundation of the world. Because you've got to understand that, that he is God. He can do what he wants, when he wants, in whatever way he wants. And every single thing is at his disposal for his glory. For his glory. Mark 
take those three words and ingrain them in your mind today as we talk through this. For his glory. There's a guy named Nick Vujicic, if any of y'all have ever heard of him. He's on the screen. Nick Vujicic was born the son of an Australian pastor, uh, and he's born without arms and legs. And his mom and dad, you know, reality was they were distraught when he was born. Distraught. Devastated by that condition that their firstborn uh, son, uh, the way that he was born. And they said, it's a pastor and his wife, they said, if God is a God of love, then why in the world would he let something like this happen? Even, y'all, this is what we, we Christians do. Even for a committed Christian, why would God let that happen? You know, raise your hand if you've ever done that. God, I'm a Christian. Why are you going to let something bad happen to me? Are you kidding me? And so that's what they, that's what they said. Nick, as he's growing up, he struggles in, in school with rejection and with people making fun of him and bullied and all of that kind of stuff. And he said, Nick did, he said at that stage of his childhood, he could kind of understand God's love up to a point, but he still got hung up on the, on the fact that if God really loved me, these are his words, if God really loved me, why did he make me like this? And he goes on and he said, I, I wondered if I had done something wrong and I began to feel pretty certain that that, that, that must be true. As a, as a young teenager, he, he toyed around, that's a silly way to say that, but he had suicidal ideation and he, and he played around with suicide until one day when he was 15 years old, he cracked open a Bible and he read a story in John chapter 9 about the man who was born blind. And verse 3 in John 9 says, Neither this man nor his parents sinned, but that the works of God should be revealed in him. That the glory of God should be revealed in him. That's what, that's what John 9 says. And so in that moment, Nick gave his life to Christ. Fast forward 20-something years later, the dude is 38 years old. He runs a ministry called Life Without Limbs. I don't know if any of y'all have ever heard of that ministry. But in the last 15 years, that ministry has reached 733 million people for Christ. 733 million people with the gospel through that ministry. Nick said this. He said, due to the emotional struggles that I experienced with bullying and, and, uh, and self-esteem and loneliness, he said, God it began to instill a passion of sharing my story and experiences to help others cope with whatever struggles they may be going through. He said, turning uh, my struggles into something that could glorify God and bless others, I began to realize my purpose. God's purpose became clearer and clearer, he says to me, and now I'm fully convinced and I understand that his glory is revealed as he uses me just the way I am for his glory, for his glory. That'll get us up to Romans 11, 25 through 36. That's really where we're going to be today, starting in verse 25. Israel's easing off to the side temporarily had a purpose, and God massages that purpose, and he uses it ultimately to bless the world. He told Abraham he's going to make him a blessing to the world, and so <clears throat> he uses that and he massages that to bless the world. And then even that was purposeful, and the purpose was 
and I think and I believe that this is so critical, y'all. The, the purpose is God's glory. The purpose is to bring him glory. We see it in verse 36, Romans eleven thirty-six. For for him, excuse me, for from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be glory forever. Y'all, that's how Paul concludes this passage. I just gave you the punchline here at the beginning. That's how he concludes the passage. In fact, that's how Paul concludes the first 11 chapters of Romans. It's the climax of the first 11 chapters of Romans because those first 11 chapters, in a nutshell, is God's great plan of redemption unfolding. It's God's uh, great plan of salvation that Paul takes 11 chapters. Now, the way Paul writes is probably four sentences in 11 chapters, but he takes those chapters and he lays out in full God's plan of salvation. His plan of salvation. And, and then we see, and it really begins in the first verse of chapter 1. And, he, and he's been leading the reader. He's been leading us to a place where we see that from that first verse of chapter 1 up until now, he takes us to a place where we can see that the purpose of God in salvation for Jews and for Gentiles is in his own glory. It's all about his glory. I hope you got a worship guide. We've got a few fill in the blanks today. The first one is this, that the goal of every single thing that happens in the universe, every single thing that happens in the universe is the glory of God. And the reason that God set out to redeem man and to inaugurate, to inaugurate his kingdom was that he might be glorified. The ultimate purpose is not salvation. That's a means to a bigger purpose, which is the glory of God. The bigger purpose is not bringing Israel into the game. That's a means to the glory of God. The, 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 it's not that the Gentiles are grafted in to the family, grafted in to the church. No, that's a means to the glory of God. The ultimate end of God's whole redemption plan is not the glory of his, of his kingdom. It's not the glory of his kingdom. That's a means to his glory. It's all about his glory. And that's this mysterious, awesome, unimaginable, amazing, and all-encompassing reason for everything. Psalm 19 begins, the heavens declare the glory of God. The prophet Isaiah records God saying in chapter 43, the beasts of the field will what? Will glorify me. In other words, everything created in the universe, all of it is for God's glory. Everything. Every man. Earlier in Isaiah 43, in verse 6, he says, Bring my sons from afar and my daughters from the end of the earth, everyone who is called by my name, whom I created for my glory. Everything is for the glory of God. Now, for, for us to even, if we can even begin to understand that, that idea, that idea of the all-encompassing glory of God. We need to look at his nature. We need to, you know, and I talk about his nature all the time. I'll say stuff like, he wouldn't do this or that because it's just kind of outside of his nature. Or, of course, it's just who he is. It's just in his nature. Well, let's see what, what these verses at the end of Romans 11 say about, about his nature or about his, his character or, or his DNA. You know, what it, what it is about God that Paul focuses on here 
in Romans 11. What it is that Paul highlights here, four things, I believe, that make him glory-worthy, that make him praiseworthy. Number one is this, it is his sovereignty, his sovereignty, God's sovereignty. Number two is his reliability. And number three is his mercy or his kindness. And number four is, I'm not going to tell you number four yet. Number four is the Ed word. I'm going to tell you down at the end today, I will give you this word that I think Paul talks about. This fourth uh, aspect of his DNA, of his character, of his nature. First is that he's sovereign. He is sovereign. He's in control. He's in charge, verse 25. And y'all, I would submit to you that in the last year, people have overused that word. They've over, not sovereign, but in control. Well, I, I know God's in control. Well, people just spit it out. And this is such an aside and a rabbit trail. But they just spit that out, but they don't live their life like God is in control. They say he's in control because maybe in some way it makes them feel okay about whatever, but they're not living and walking and breathing that he's in control. But he is. He's the sovereign controller of history. So he's sovereign. Look at verse 25. Now Paul here is talking to Gentiles, and I'm going to kind of explain that as we, walk, as we walk down this. But in this part of Romans 11, he's talking to Gentiles. And he says in verse 25, Lest you be wise in your own sight, I don't want you to be unaware of this mystery, brothers. A partial hardening has come upon Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in, and in this way all Israel will be saved. This is coming right on the heels of God warning the Gentiles not to get big-headed, not to get prideful, and not to start hating on the Jews. This temporary stumbling or this temporary blindness or this temporary dullness of understanding uh, on the part of Israel is what Paul is calling this mystery that, and that word mystery there means a truth that up until this point it hadn't been unveiled yet. But it's about to be made known. He's making it known. That mystery reveals that Israel's temporary stumbling, their temporary blindness or dullness, it's always been part of God's plan. I say this again all the time. Nothing sneaks up on him. It's not like he, he chucked and jived and, and all of a sudden did this. It was been before the foundation of the world. So this was part of, always been part of God's plan. God puts Israel aside for a time not rejecting them permanently, kicking them to the curb. No, he puts them a little bit to the side for a time to then offer salvation to the Gentiles. He doesn't reject them. We talked at length about that last week. But he, they're, they're, they're set off to the side. He didn't remove their free will. They rejected him. So they're set off to the side to open the door for the Gentiles. And Paul reveals this mystery, in this mystery, he reveals this so that the Gentiles won't get prideful, so they won't get chest thumpy. Y'all know what chest thumpy is? Say chest thumpy. Chest thumpy. That's when you're beating your chest, acting like you're all that. And Paul's saying, y'all don't do that. Don't do that. So the, and the revelation here, the, the mystery that is being revealed is that the Jews are coming back. That's the, that's the mystery that he's kind of revealing that the blindness that Israel had, Paul says, is only partial. It's only temporary. In fact, that word that's used in verse 25 for hardening, it's a different word than he used in chapter 9, I think. It's a different word. That In chapter 9, it really meant stubbornness and really hardcore. Here, it really 
that word means a dullness or a or a or a something is clouding judgment or or belief or something is clouding the truth. So Paul says they're coming back and it's in God's sovereignty according to his plan they're going to be inserted back into the family they're going to be grafted back in. But he says now something's got to happen first. Something's got to happen first. Remember, we said it last week, they're not rejected permanently, but something's got to happen first, and that something is when the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. When the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. And what that phrase means, remember last week we talked about being comfortable in a little bit of tension, that every single thing is not absolutely black and white. Well, there's different interpretations. I hate to say it that way, but there's different uh, different interpretations of what that means. They're all super similar, but that phrase, when the fullness of the Gentiles has come in, I believe it refers to a time when, when every nation has heard the gospel, when every single nation has heard the gospel. But whatever it means, and we don't have time today to, for me to kind of explain what all, the four or five different interpretations, but reality is whatever that means, the Jews temporary, when it happens, the Jews' temporary blindness will be removed. And so that fact, the fact that that phrase is not super crystal clear black and white, it doesn't affect what happens to Israel. It just affects when it happens to them. It, it, so it's not super relevant. In God's sovereignty, when the gospel has been proclaimed everywhere all over the planet, then his attention will shift back to redeeming Israel. The timing of all that, like, I don't know. I don't know. I know when the planet has been evangelized. I believe when the planet has been evangelized, he's going to turn his attention back to Israel. Look at verse 26. And in this way, all Israel will be saved, or at least the beginning of verse 26. And if you remember back in Romans chapter 9, several weeks ago, Paul is agonizing. Don't, don't, don't forget it, that Paul was raised. Paul was a Jew of Jews. Paul studied under Gamaliel, greatest rabbi in Judaism that ever lived. Paul was a Hebrew of Hebrews, he says. All of his people are Jewish. So if you remember back in Romans chapter 9, he's agonizing over the lostness of his kin people. And if you remember, he said, these are, this is Ed's paraphrase, but he said, I'd sell my soul to the devil if it meant I could get my Jewish brothers and sisters saved. He was agonizing over that. And so I believe that in verse 26, his heart must have just leapt, leapt for joy as he thought through and as he wrote the words, as he penned the words, and in this way all of Israel will be saved. Paul was an apostle to the Gentiles. That was his mission. And I promise you that he was, he was like, let me get this done as fast as I can get done so that then he could see the redemption of Israel. All Israel. Well, what does all Israel means? It means as a nation, corporately, corporately, the Jews are going to turn to the Messiah. They're going to turn to Jesus as, um, as the Messiah, as a nation, corporately, as a people, corporately. Y'all, there's no reason to assume, and I've heard people say this before, every single Jew is going to be saved at the end of the day now. No, no more than every single Gentile is going to be saved. It's a corporate thing. There's no reason to believe that all Israel means every single individual Jew. No, that's not at all, that's not at all what it means. 
The difference, though, if you remember last week, we talked about a remnant and that God was saving a remnant out of Israel. The difference now, though, at this point, is when uh, that remnant is going to be unbelieving Jews. That remnant is going to be the ones that reject him because they will all in mass turn to Jesus as their Messiah. And the purpose in all of that is to bring glory to God, to put his sovereignty on display. And so Paul helps us to see that Israel is going to be saved and in seeing that, to know that God is the sovereign controller of history. Like what a comforting thing that is. What a comforting thought that is. And what crazy cause it is to give him glory. So number one, he is sovereign. And number two, he is reliable. He's reliable. Verse 26 continues on. And in this way, all Israel will be saved, what? As it is written. As it is written. Paul says that's the way it's written, and that's the way it's going to go down. Well, why is that? Because God is reliable. Praise the Lord, God is reliable. Somebody ought to say amen on God's reliability and trustworthiness. He said it's written this way, and that's what's going to happen. And he goes on uh, and says the deliverer will come from Zion. He will banish all ungodliness from Jacob, and this will be my covenant with them when I take away their sins. He's referring in, this, in these couple of three verses to Isaiah 59 and Isaiah 27. He reaches back to this promise that's made in Isaiah 59, and he says the deliverer, who you reckon the deliverer is? Jesus Christ is the deliverer. He'll come from Zion, and he will banish ungodliness from Jacob, which is just another way, another name for Israel. So this promise of Isaiah in, uh, in chapter 59, verses 20 and 21, is that God is going to save Israel. He's going to turn away ungodliness. He is going to take away their sin. Isaiah 27, verse 9 says it. It says the guilt of Jacob will be atoned for, and this will be the, the full fruit of the removal of sin. And so the point is that Israel's salvation, corporately, Israel's salvation is an absolute necessity as a nation. It's a necessity because God promised it. He promised it. And how can we glorify, would he be glory worthy if he was unreliable? No would be the answer to that. No, he's a God of reliability. Verse 27 says, this will be my what? My covenant with them when I take away their sins. His promise, y'all, to take away, to take away sin, that is such a beautiful, wondrous, glorious description of forgiveness. He takes away the sin. He takes it away and he runs back to the back and he opens the fire exit and he just throws it away. It's gone. It's gone. We all have a tendency to drag it back up. We drag our own sin back up. Way after we've confessed and asked forgiveness and been forgiven, we drag it back up. Don't do that. Don't do that. You think God's going to whisper in your ear? Susan, remember what you did five years ago? No. 
No, don't do that. That is not what he does when, 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 when he, and we assume, because we do it sometimes, we assume that that's what he does. Scripture promises over and over throughout, it promises the exact opposite of that. Y'all, when he forgives us, when we repent and we confess and we are forgiven, it, it, those sins are as gone as a house that's been demolished and hauled off to the landfill and when you start dragging it up and continuing that sin, you're rebuilding a house that he's already destroyed. Don't do that. Don't drive out to the landfill and get all the two-by-fours and start rebuilding something he's already done away with. Let it be done and gone and buried. That's the way that, that, it, that he looks at it when he removes sin. He's reliable. Y'all, you can count on him. Look at Numbers, Numbers 23, verse 19 speaks of his reliability it says God is not man that he should lie or son of man that he should change his mind has he said and will he not do it or has he spoken and will he not fulfill it he's reliable the next two verses in Romans 11 they, they, they reinforce this thought Paul writes as regards the gospel now you got to get your arms around this one as regards the gospel they the Jews, are enemies for you, the Gentiles say. So as regards the gospel, they're enemies for your sake. But as regards election, they, the Jews, are beloved for the sake of their forefathers. For the gifts and the calling of God are irrevocable. It's a strong word, irrevocable. So in relation to the gospel, the Jews are enemies of God. They're, they're not friends of his. But in relation to election, What's the Bible say they are? Beloved. Well, here's what that means. Based on their rejection of Christ, based on their rejection of the gospel, they're enemies. But based on God's promise, when he called them, look at the end of, I think it's the end of verse 28. The promise that he made to their forefathers, based on that, they're beloved. It's hard to get your arms around, but I read a guy one time, that he, uh, he called Israel God's beloved enemy. That's a great description, great title of Israel because at the same time, they're beloved and they're enemies. Concerning the gospel, they're enemies and as concerning God's choice and his reliability and his trustworthiness, they're beloved for the sake of the fathers. Verse 29 says that the privileges and the invitation that's given to Israel will never be withdrawn. That's what that word irrevocable, the Bible says they're irrevocable. God will not take back his gifts. He will not withdraw his call. Why will he not do that? Because he's what? Reliable. He's reliable. What a comforting thing that is. What a comforting thing that is. You know, one of the greatest things my kids have ever said to me is that I was reliable and, and consistent. One of the greatest compliments the God we serve y'all is reliable. And then he's merciful, number three. He's merciful and he's kind. Look at verse 30. He's merciful and he's kind. For just as you, Gentiles, were at one time disobedient to God, but you Gentiles 
now have received mercy because of their Jews, the Jews' disobedience. So, for just as you were at one time disobedient to God, but now have received mercy because of their disobedience, so they, too, have now been disobedient in order that by the mercy shown to you, they also may now receive mercy. That's a tongue twister. I get it. Verse 32 goes on and says, For God has consigned all to disobedience, that he may have mercy on all. You see the four times, y'all, in three verses. Mercy, 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 mercy. When you're studying Scripture and you're reading Scripture, get you a highlighter or a pen or something, and when words are used over and over and over, that means something. That tells me that the, the thrust of this passage is God's mercy. Mercy. Surely his mercy is praiseworthy. Surely his mercy is glory-worthy. And mercy is God not, uh, not hammering us. Him, he's holding back from hammering us when we deserve to get hammered. Mercy is his forgiveness when we're really not kind of forgivable. We're, uh, mercy is God loving us when we're in the middle of being unlovable. Mercy, it's all grounded, that mercy in his compassion and in his love. And verse 30 is plain and simple. The gospel goes out to the Gentiles because the Jews rejected it. By the hardness of their hearts, you Gentiles were folded into the gospel. You were folded into Christ. So in time past, look back in history, the Gentiles who didn't believe in God they weren't people of the covenant. They weren't children of the promise. They were strangers to the promises of God. The Bible would call them aliens, outcasts. In simple terms, the Gentiles were unbelievers. So none of the Gentiles shared in the privileges of being uh, 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 the chosen people. They did not share in those privileges. But because of, their, uh, of, of the Jews' unbelief, because of the Jews' unbelief, you've been brought in and folded in and, the, and God's eyes and attention have turned to the Gentiles. Now, the gospel didn't turn to the Gentiles because somehow you were mo' better or that you were mo' deserving or that you were mo' bigger or any of those mo' words, mo' mo worthy. That's not how God works. It's not performance-based never has been performance-based, never will be performance-based. Look at back at, at Genesis 12. He didn't choose Israel. He didn't choose and call Abraham because they were more deserving or more better or more bigger or whatever. No, it's his mercy, y'all. It is his mercy. These verses tell us crystal in a crystal clear way it's about his mercy. They tell me that salvation is all about mercy. All about mercy. God becomes merciful towards the Gentiles as a result of Israel's rejection of him. And he says, but there'll come a day. There'll come a day when God's mercy shown to you Gentiles will result in Israel's jealousy. And they're wanting what you got. And they will once again fall under the merciful hand of God. There'll come a day when Jews in mass will desire to possess what those who know Christ possess. 
They will desire to possess what those who know Christ possess. When you are out in the world and you are out at the gas station and you are talking to somebody at Target or wherever it is, those people you come into contact with, the way you talk, the way you walk, the way you act, the way you behave, they should want to possess what you possess. If you possess Christ, if he is inside of you, and if, if you are indwelt with the Holy Spirit, you want people to look at you and say, I want, like, I want what she's got. Like, Susan, what is it that is different about you? Like, I want some of that. Patty, what is different about you? I knew you win, but what is different? I want me some of that. That's what the world needs to look at us as Christ followers and say. And Paul says that's going to happen to the Jews in mass. They're going to want to possess what those of us who know Christ possess. The hope and the peace and the freedom that is found in the gospel. And it's just God's amazing mercy and grace and kindness. It's this perfect plan. Israel, back in Genesis, they didn't deserve squat. They didn't deserve squat. But God showered them in mercy. The Gentiles, verse 30 says, were disobedient. God's mercy falls on them. Gentiles didn't do squat to deserve that. And so in his mercy, he's going to reel back in Israel. In both cases, it's mercy. Mercy on the Gentiles, mercy on the Jews. Salvation is so obviously based, grounded, founded, foundationally, whatever the word is, on God's mercy. Paul says it so well. He's writing to Timothy in 1 Timothy in chapter 1, his spiritual son. He's in Ephesus, and Paul's writing to him. And he says this. It's Paul's words, Paul talking. I thank him who's given me strength, Christ Jesus our Lord, because he judged me faithful appointing me to his service. And he says it, he judged me faithful. Like how awesome will it be when you, when you are with the Lord and he judges you faithful? So Paul says he judged me faithful. Though formerly I was a blasphemer, a persecutor, and an insolent opponent. In other words, he was disobedient. But then he says, but I received mercy. I was a blasphemer. I was uh, an insolent opponent and a persecutor, but I received mercy. Y'all, it's like you're in this courtroom and, and, and the judge says, Ed, you are a billion percent guilty of this laundry list of stuff that you did. You're 1,000 percent guilty. Every count against you, and then he dismisses the case with forgiveness. That's mercy. Anybody ever heard of Fiorello LaGuardia? He was the mayor in New York in the 30s. He's in, he's, he goes into one of the poorest wards in New York and he tells, gives the night judge the night off and he says, I'm going to sit on the bench today, tonight. And a woman comes in, an older lady comes in, it's one of the cases, sweet little old lady who got busted stealing bread to feed her grandchildren. LaGuardia says, the crime's got to be punished. The crime's got, you, you committed a crime, you admitted you committed a crime, it has to be punished. And so he's, now remember it's 1935, but he says $10 or 10 days in jail, and as he's talking, he pulls a 10 out of his pocket and he throws it in his hat. That's mercy. She didn't deserve that. The crime has got to be paid for. Well, he paid for the crime. It's mercy. It's mercy. What a comforting thing that is. 
and what great cause it is to give him glory. So number three, he's merciful and he's kind. Number four is this. Somebody give me a drum roll. Where's Brian? Give me a drum roll. It's his ginormity. His ginormity. He's ginormous, y'all. Ginormity. Here's the definition of ginormity. G-I-N-O-R-M-I-T-Y. Ginormity. I feel like I'm in a spelling bee. Ginormity is the state of being impossible to comprehend. Ginormity is having or being subject to no limits. Absolutely no limits. And so Paul finishes this argument in Romans 11 and he's laid out God's sovereignty and his reliability and his mercy to Jew and Gentile alike and his plan comes to fruition with the Gentile folks being folded in, being redeemed and ultimately with Israel being redeemed and folded back in and the whole plan is so perfect and it's so glorious and Paul paints this, this picture for us to see of this God who is sovereign and reliable and merciful and crazy, praiseworthy and glory worthy. And then verse 33 is like this pinnacle here. It's like a song. It's like he's singing a song starting in verse 33. You can just almost see Paul as he's writing, singing, oh, the depths of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and how inscrutable his ways for who has known the mind of the Lord? Who could even know his mind or who has been his counselor or who has given a gift to him that he might be repaid? Paul says he is ginormous. He is impossible to comprehend. Paul says, I can't even begin to describe this God who is so indescribable. And Paul knew the Old Testament like the very back of his hand. He knew the scriptures like the back of his hand. He knew that David declared in Psalm 8 that God painted the sky. I think I'll have a star there. And I think I'll put the moon there. And I think I'll put Saturn there. And I'll put Pluto there. He hung every single, that God that hung every single thing in the sky, that's the God that he's talking about. Y'all, he knew that Psalm 19 said that the heavens declare the glory of God. And it even goes even a little further if you read a little more in Psalm 19. Not just the heavens declare the glory of God, but, he, but, but the psalmist says they pour forth speech day after day after day after day, night after night. He knows no bounds, this God that Paul's talking about. He is indescribable. He's virtually He's just beyond words. He transcends everything. And so Paul is like, oh, the depth and the riches and the wisdom and the knowledge and the love and the mercy and the reliability and the generosity and the sovereignty and the kindness and the grace of God. It's just too much. I can see Paul in my mind's eye. It's just too much. He just spent 11 chapters fully laying out God's plan of redemption, his plan of salvation. And he says it's just so perfect because the author is just so perfect. And he's like, it's just, but it overwhelms me when I even begin to try to, to think about and to comprehend the author and the creator of all of it. And I can just see Paul saying, let me just close this thing out. And he says, it's his ginormousness. 
because he says for from from him and through him and to him are all things to him be glory forever amen every single thing that has ever existed or ever will exist time space matter every single molecule every atom every thought of every man, every thought of every woman, every emotion any of you have ever had or ever will have, every feeling that you have ever had or ever will have, every hard heart, y'all, every soft heart, every living thing ever, every plant, every animal, all of it, every bit of it in a bucket is for his glory. All of it is for his glory. Think about how unbelievable that is, y'all. And then go down to the end of the book in Revelation. Chapter 4, verse 11. What do the elders do? They fall down before the throne. And in verse 11, it says, Worthy are you, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and, and power. It says, For you created all things, and by your will they exist and are created. By your will. It is his glory, y'all, and and and. and and here's what's the most amazing, mysterious, I think that's the right word, the most mysterious thing of all of it. This God that I just spent 30 or 40 minutes very inadequately trying to paint a picture of, trying to describe this creator of all of it, this creator of everything that is, was, or ever will be, that's the guy, y'all, that's the one who's calling your name right now. Holy mackerel, it's unreal. That ginormous creator. He knows every thought you've ever had and every thought you'll ever, ever have. He knows where every hair on your arm or your head or whatever. He knows every single thing. He knows every feeling you've ever had. He's the one that is madly in love with you right now. You cannot even imagine that. In this moment, the Bible says he's jealous for you. Can you imagine the guy who hung Pluto where he wanted it to hang? He is jealous for your heart, and he desperately wants you to be his son or daughter. Your earthly mom or daddy may have rejected you. I don't know. I know we live in a broken world. Your heavenly father wants you to crawl up in his lap so he can put his arm around you. Can you imagine that? It's unbelievable, y'all. And why would that be? Like, it, like, why would it be? As I'm thinking this week trying to answer that question for my, my own self, it's a love letter. The whole book is a love letter. And it is his love. It is his love. They sang a little while ago. One of the lines in that song was, I will build my life upon your love because it's a firm foundation. His love. And I think here in Romans, Paul would say God's sovereignty and his reliability and his, and his mercy and his ginormousness, they all come crashing together at the foot of the cross and they manifest themselves in the love that happened on that cross in the sacrificial love that displays itself in the gospel. That sacrificial love, the death, the burial, and the resurrection of God's own son, that's 
Why? That's the God that he wants you, and 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 he wants me. Like I can't even fathom it. But that is the God who we serve. You can trust him. You know he's not done with you. He is ginormous. Like, like, he is ginormous. Lord, we love you today. Lord, we thank you that you love us when we're unlovable. Where would we be if you only loved us when we're lovable? Lord, we cannot thank you enough if we thanked you for a thousand years for the salvation that you offer us, it wouldn't be enough. Lord, we thank you that you are a God, that you are, you are exactly who you say you are, and you can do exactly what you say you can do. And praise you that you're reliable, and praise you that you're sovereign, and praise you, praise you that you're merciful, that we don't get what we deserve. And so, Lord, I pray right now for somebody, some people who heard your word this morning, you pricked their heart this morning, they're turning, they're repenting, they're turning away from their sin, and they're confessing right now that Jesus Christ is Lord, and they're believing in their heart that you raised him from the dead to pay that penalty to pay that $10 or 10 days in jail. Lord, that you took the hit. So Lord, we thank you and we love you in Jesus' name, amen. Hey, if that's y'all, that's you watching or whatever, and you just gave your life to Christ and you asked him to save you, he will save you. And if that happened, if you're watching, go to our website, Fill out a little online connection card and just let us know. And if you're here, let us know on one of those connection cards. Take it to the Welcome Center. We'll have somebody on our prayer team back in the back, and they would love to pray with you, pray for you. And, and, and let's just say you've been a believer for 20 years, but you need, some, you need some prayer right now. They're back there. And, I mean, we want to lock arms the way believers should be locking arms and praying with and for each other.